This episode is presented by Gorgeous. Did you know that loyal customers are nine times more likely to convert compared to first-time shopper? That's why exceptional customer service is so important for your retention and growth. Gorgeous combines all of your communication channels, including email, SMS, social media, live chat, and phone, all on a one platform and gives you an organized view of all tickets. This saves your support team hours per day and makes managing customer orders a breeze. Book a demo at Gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com today and mention the Consumer VC podcast for two months free. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Tyler Mincy, for the introduction to our guest today, Ben West. Ben is the founder of Spark Grills which is precision charcoal grilling, meaning it's really the best of both worlds. You get the amazing flavor since you're cooking on charcoal, but also get the ease and temperature precision that's typically associated with gas grills. Previously, Ben founded EcoZoom, which brought efficient cook stoves to areas of the developing world plagued with indoor air pollution. On this episode, you'll learn some of the differences building a company that is tailored towards the developing world First, one that is focused on the developed world. The two groups he considers as Spark Grill's target audiences and what it was like launching during COVID. Without further ado, here's Ben. Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Thanks. How about you? I'm doing great. Doing great. Thanks again for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to... I don't do this a lot, so it's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be great. Thanks again. I'd love to start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship and wood stoves and grills? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, really started for me, you know, kind of in the antithesis of startup. I was working in a trucking company in, in Tennessee and, you know, like I was getting really nice raises and stuff as like a kid out of undergrad and really was kind of given an opportunity there that I, I shouldn't have really had. But, uh, you know, even though I was getting good raises, it was just really learning. It wasn't really for me. Like I wasn't having a great time and was really trying to like find ways to get more meaning out of what I was doing there. Yeah, really you know, basically got into a career change and went back to grad school. I was, you know, I'd kind of heard of companies like doing social impact things like D-Light and Barefoot Power that, you know, that that were and are still doing great, like um, home charging and lighting solutions in developing countries, you know, all solar based. Um, and, um, you know, thought I'd go back to grad school and that the social venture path had been paved. Um, but, 
yeah, just really, you know, went to grad school uh, to, to do a career change off of working in the trucking industry. And then while I was there, I learned about the issue of cook stoves and cooking in developing countries. Um, you know, learned that half the world cooks on an open fire. It, it causes, you know, 4 million premature deaths every year from respiratory diseases and, and other, other such issues. And it's like smoking a couple packs of cigarettes a day for mom and kids. And so while I think like the, you know, the, the, the like startup stories of where like kids hustle to sell bubble gum and elementary school is like super romantic. And I wish I was one of those people. I, I'm much more of the kind of like, shit, somebody should do this. Like somebody should like tackle this issue and, and do something about it. Yeah. And so like, you know, thought I'd go back to school and just go work for like, you know, a company like Delight and Barefoot Power, but learned about the issues and the opportunity in the, in the cook stove space, you know, just kind of like couldn't help, but, but really try to dive in. And one of the professors at the business school I went to was on, on the board of a group that does R&D for cook stoves in developing countries. And I just basically like pitched myself to work for them for free um, after grad school. It's funny, I'd worked in the career services center at our business school and, um, you know, the stats, there are always like, how much money can you make after grad school? I think I like totally screwed some of their metrics, but um, it was great to like get into something I was really into. You know, basically they just wanted grants and I, you know, they, they pitched me to basically take the grant on a salary. And what I ended up doing was just using the money to like do business development efforts, like marketing efforts and, you know, to set up great income generating opportunities so that, you know, my salary and subsequent team member salaries could all be like sustainably developed within the organization. and. Um, not be so reliant on on external funding. That's what really got me into the wood stove, you know, cook stove space. And it was an awesome journey. Like got to live in Mexico for a while and work on a national cook stove program there. Lived in Kenya for almost two years, working on programs within East Africa. We had some really great uh, accomplishments with the company. Uh, the company is called EcoZoom and we sold nearly a million units while I was working there. Um, at the time, like a big majority of Rwanda used one of our products. Um, and we got into the Inc. 1000 for like, you know, fastest running private held companies, won a bunch of B Corp Best in the World Awards. Um, yeah, it was a super great experience. Uh, I ended up moving back to Portland, Oregon, where I'm from after that. You know, that's that's what really got me into thinking about what was next. But yeah, I mean, my time there was was great. And I, that's really, really where I fell in love with um, with entrepreneurship and really just ended up moving on. You know, I just... Um, there's not a lot of like MA in that space, unfortunately, um, but moved on really just because I just kind of like lost encouragement or motivation in that space. Like it's a really tough space. Like we earned about 30% gross margins, which are great uh, in that space, but you know, really horrible <laughs> in most any context for having sustainable business. And then, you know, cost of delivery to customers and lots of other things were super expensive. And, you know, there's no like Amazon and things like that in developing countries. No, totally. I was just going to ask you about what were some of the challenges building a company in developing countries. Yeah, I mean, I think like it can be nice or it can break someone, I think. Like I think startup is all about like bending or being flexible, you know, with uh, the myriad of challenges you get. You never know what's going to come up and stuff. But like that's multiplied many times, I think, like doing social venture work in developing countries, like at least in Nairobi where I was and in Kenya, like, you know, a simple thing like driving 20 minutes to a meeting can end up taking like two hours to get, you know, from A to B. And so there's, a, you know, and of course that just ripples through the day and, or the person you were going to meet, it, you know, had that issue or all those things. So like, there's a lot of unpredictability and a lot of need for flexibility. Um, but I think other than that, I mean, you know, like the reward is right in your face, which is really nice. Um, and, you, you know, you see it every day, which is really great. You know, it's a lot more hands-on, but yeah, a lot less structures there. And so like, you know, when you're, 
young and ready to get after it. It's, it's a great thing to do. I don't know a lot of people that go back to it like second, third times. Um, you know, you're earning kind of like a partial FTE salary. And, you know, then people think about like buying houses and having kids and need to get serious about making some money and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of my heart's still there. Like, I, you know, still know that world like the back of my hands and it'd be great to get back there someday. A lot of my, you know, reason for transitioning was, you know, some of the, those things of like making, you know, a good income and stuff like that. But like, definitely, you know, it'd be great to, you know, make some money in this life and then put it back to work, you know, doing some cool things to develop markets again. So after EcoZoom, I know you shared that you then went to Portland. Walk us through the inspiration and why you decided then to start Spark Rails. Yeah, it's, it started for me a couple of years earlier, you know, with EcoZoom, you know, the cook stove company, we trialed a bunch of different like pellet fuel programs. And, you know, in that world, the goal is really to make um, a cook stove burn super clean. Like, you know, the problem with cooking in developing countries is it's like cooking over a three stone fire. You know, it's kind of like you'd be cooking when you go camping, but indoors and, you know, it's like smoking a couple packs of cigarettes a day, you know? So like the goal is really to like smoke less cigarettes or ideally no cigarettes. And so to do that, you know, what was really being found at the time was like, it's all about like liquid fuels that have clean combustion, you know, think of it like propane, um, pure CO2 burning, or, you know, tuning, you know, like uh, wood and charcoal to burn very well with the hardware or, or the cook stove itself. And so that was a big insight that I drew from EcoZoom, you know, just kind of had tucked away, I guess, like when we lived in Nairobi, we just had this rule to get out to the backcountry once a month and just really fell in love with cooking with wood and charcoal ourselves. Like I had been running the company for a couple of years, but um, cooking with wood and charcoal is just, it's an awesome experience that, you know, draws people in. The flavor is amazing. You know, and when I moved back to Portland, I wanted to continue cooking that way and saw that awesome restaurants were starting and, you know, New York, LA, San Francisco, going back to this renaissance of cooking with wood and charcoal again. And, you know, for those same reasons, um, you know, I wanted to continue cooking that way and, you know, was just, you know, talk to friends and, you know, started doing some user interviews and found that, you know, people really wanted all the convenience that you get from cooking with propane, but, you know, knew that they were missing the fuel and the flavor of, of cooking with charcoal. Um, and, you know, kind of like drawing from that old insight of my time with EcoZoom about tuning the hardware and the fuel to work really tightly together. You know, I saw that's, you know, that's not really going on in the space that we're working in now. And um, I didn't know how I would do it at the time, but um, thought that there was something there. And, you know, with some early prototyping, did some early you know, proof of concept and, um, you know, very duct tape prototypes. Um, but yeah, it all, it all, you know, was a good start and, um, you know, really showed it was worth pursuing from like a business model perspective, market perspective. Um, and then of course, like recurring revenue is, is great, um, for business longevity and just kind of like good gross margin over time. So how did you go about designing the initial product of bringing the convenience that you might get with gas, but getting the flavor and really the fun, to be honest, um, with cooking with, with charcoal and wood? Yeah, I mean, the first, you know, like milk carton, kind of like carrying cases you see on the back, like 10 speeds that people throw their backpacks in and stuff. Like um, my first prototypes were just trying to get, you know, like different brick uh, or like charcoal orientations to light in a very good way. Um, I had like a perforated uh, kitchen or like, you know, industrial kitchen pan with uh, this like boat fan taped to the bottom of it and um, nichrome wire in the pan and was just trying to like light it in various different ways. So, you know, very rudimentary in that work. My first full prototype was 
you know, double walled stainless steel under counter ice bins like you'd find in restaurants with the piano hinge across the back and like just took a Dremel to it. And that worked really well. And then started getting into like the right envelope. So really ended up having like, I think it was like nine different rounds of like a prototype builds. Um, first, just around like what, you know, works like so that we, you know, getting the system to work, went through the industrial design process and and then, you know, integrating the the works like and the looks like together. And then, you know, we did over a year's worth of product market fit testing with customers before coming to market and cutting tooling. And so it, it was really a long process. Um, and the interoperability of the charcoal working really tight with the grill um, took a long time. So the the system basically, you know, there's thermal couples in the grill uh, that read temperature, those feedback to an onboard computer that just control all the airflow in the grill to control temperature. Um, yeah, I mean, it it ignites and gets up to temperature super fast. And, you know, the hardware and the electronics work really great. But like designing the airflow to work well between grill and fuel just, you know, it took a lot of different rounds of prototyping. And, one, you know, a change in one required a change in the other. And it, it, it took, you know, a little more time than expected. But um, the outcome has been great. Like, you know, people really love it. It honestly works a lot better than I really ever expected. That's awesome. That's that's amazing. And and when you were product market testing with customers, I mean, how would you describe at the very beginning your ideal customer? We've been really pretty right about this, which is which has been nice. So like, you know, there's two main groups that we, you know, thought and seem to be working well even today. Um, the first was, you know, somebody I called like consummate griller. It's the 20, you know, 20% of the US market that owns two or more grills, you know, cooking with propane during the week, using something like a big green egg or Traeger on the weekend. With that group, our goal is to really replace the propane grill. Most people aren't like bragging or, you know, when we interviewed chefs and restaurateurs and our target customers, like a lot of people are actually kind of like trying to like not answer that part of the question. We had to like ask three times what they use during the week and, you know, we'd come out that they were using a propane grill. You know, that's easy to, to replace. And then, you know, our goal would be to earn our way into the weekend and, and you know, be the go-to grill for that audience. The other, which we're really excited about actually, and, and is a like growing the market overall for the industry is really the, you know, we call them the home chef, you know, think of somebody that uses cast iron in the kitchen, about half that market owns a grill, but they don't really use it that much. You know, they're foodie, they have tools in the kitchen, um, you know, aren't looking for gadgets when it comes to cooking. But what we really found, you know, that people aren't grilling that much and don't own a grill in that space is, you know, they have friends coming over at six. Um, they want great flavor and great outcomes, but haven't been able to get that with grills today from their perspective. So like food could be done, you know, from four to eight at some point and, you know, without reliable flavor outcomes. And so, uh, yeah, we, we've been targeting both after we've launched and um, it's been working really well with both groups, uh, which has been a you know nice pleasant surprise. Hard work can be quite hard. You know, we did a lot of product market fit testing, but um, we, we, we did a small like early pre-order campaign developed a small email list, uh, you know, off just like Facebook and, and friends lists and um, did a small pre-order, pre-order in May of last year, like a year ago now, and um, sold a few hundred units in a couple of weeks. You know, the idea being that we could kind of make like, a, you know, a hundred or a few hundred mistakes versus a few thousand mistakes, like if there were problems with those early units. Um, uh, so we, um, we got units out initially in Colorado in September to, I think it was like 40 local customers. Um, you know, we did product market fit testing here too, but like just really wanted to be sure that all the fit and finish and materials and onboarding and everything else was really, uh, you know, clearly understandable and was getting across the way we wanted. So all, all that went really well. So we delivered the balance of the uh, 250 or so units uh, nationally in October. 
we did in the summer, like try to continue selling. It wasn't working as well as we wanted. Um, it was a very like brand forward uh, site and proposition. Uh, I think a lot of times, you know, DTC go to market is like very performance heavy and and brand light. We, we were like for whatever reason on the far other end of the spectrum of like very brand heavy and performance light. But um, by about mid November, we did a revamp of things and started selling well. We we, we were able to double our our Q4 goal. I mean, you know, the the big thing I think is like just bringing the full product forward in concert of, you know, the grill with bricks and app all in a way that we can service really well for customers. Like, you know, it's a bit of a complicated product. We have it down now, but like, it's really about bringing it forward in concert. So, you know, the customer has no idea of like any kind of like backend challenges, production throughput issues or other things like that. Yeah, we've gotten it nailed now, which is great. Do you mind walking us through what you mean by how you're very brand heavy performance light from at the very beginning? What it gave you a DDC channel? We just didn't have a lot of the like, you know, it was kind of like very lifestyle oriented. It wasn't kind of like, you know, I don't think on the front page of the site, we had the like kind of like 100 day risk free, you know, free shipping, you know, just some of these like very classic uh, messaging things that people use. Um, Yeah, I mean, we just like really didn't have most all the performance stuff like in the right way. It was it was very lifestyle. It was very nice, but it it really wasn't set up to like convert people well and get them through like a funnel well of like, we just didn't have best practices of even, you know, we didn't have any landing pages. It was all just to the homepage. We didn't have product listing page before product detail. Like we just didn't have any like proper funnel metrics um, in place at all. It was pretty bad, like honestly, but, um, but you know, we, we regrouped quickly and, and, and fixed it up. But at the same time, you know, going through that experience, it also must feel pretty good or positive that people were still buying, right? Um, even though you hadn't fully optimized the site. Yeah, yeah, that was great. And I think like the brand resonates really, really well with people. And we've been through, you know, a couple iterations of the brand. You know, what we, we use now and uh, ended up using, of course, I guess is, um, you know, work we did with Bullish, uh, one of our investors, like they're great with brand positioning. And uh, yeah, we're, we're really excited about the work and the messaging and, and instilling that on our site today. Yeah, Mike Duda, who came on the podcast, was one of my favorites. He's awesome. What's it like working working with Bullish in the sense that um, you're working with, there were investors, but they also come in as well to help consult on brand issues or brand-related things? I mean, for, like, first, they're great. You know, just they know what they're doing. So, it's, you know, we're just totally honest and like, lay everything out. I mean, I think really when you're doing a lot of like brand positioning work, those guys are just experts and super amazing and you just kind of want to like give them everything that you have to to make the most of of great outcomes and yeah i mean i think that they just were like pulling the pieces out of us you know codify into you know different parts of a, a funnel and just different messaging that was who we are and be able to translate through in our materials whether that you know in, in the various materials that we use in various touch points you know company valuations are a lot about about the brand and i you know it really starts with the team and who we want to serve and you know really what we're after and you know how we're different and and just getting that message across and they pulled all of that us really well and you know laid that out really well in a way that we were able to use it to to drive the company forward what's an example in terms of how they helped shaped your brand positioning if you happen to have one yeah i mean they have a bunch of great frameworks and and things that they work with i mean i think like at the essence, a lot of the brand mission is something that we use a lot. It really helps us simplify decision making, and it was you know really came down to this idea of democratizing the joy of grilling. Um, we live by it a lot today. 
it's, you know, it's how we serve our customers. It's how we market. It's how we, it's how we think about recipes and where we get recipes from and uh, how we market. And, you know, we're a very inclusive brand. And that's, I think that's very different in the space. Like a lot of grill brands are, you know, very masculine, very meat forward. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. We just wanted to be a bit more than that, you know, be inclusive gender wise, uh, race and, you know, just be much more representative. And then it goes out to food as well. So, I mean, food from around the world can be, you know, a great like patch on a, on a quilt of like all different kinds of food, whether that's like Thai food with, or, you know, Japanese food with pinchotan charcoal or Thai food with mangrove charcoal, you know, there's just like all kinds of different things that we can do. No, that's awesome. I appreciate that example. I mean, and in terms of like democratizing the joy of grilling, is that, do you mean making grilling just um, a lot easier and making grilling a lot more accessible in, in terms of that way? Yes, but, you know, like fun and approachable. We don't think, you know, a great chef that's, you know, amazing at making ribs in the South, I think comes across as intimidating to somebody that's great at fish in the Northeast or Northwest or something like that. And, you know, in talking to those people, like no one's trying to be intimidating. They just like know their craft really well, um, want to share it. Honestly, they just like, it can be intimidating. And so it's just kind of breaking those things down so that, and then, you know, the person that's great at making ribs in the South wants to learn how to cook fish better. And they're intimidated by people that are great at cooking fish. Um, and so I think it's a lot about just like breaking those things down and, you know, the idea is meant to be approachable. The brand is very approachable. You know, the way we're approaching just like bringing people together. No, that makes sense. I mean, it also reminds me too, just thinking back to that, one of those two groups that you thought about as your initial audience of the grill master who is grilling during the week, but has to grill on gas because he doesn't have the time to, you know, set up a green egg or, or something that that takes a lot longer, or maybe a more of a traditional charcoal grill that takes a lot longer. And so it's also accessibility too, and, and also saving you on time as well, which is great. When did you realize that you needed a fundraise? Yeah, from the very beginning. I mean, it's a big hardware product. I did some initial like IP research and saw that the opportunity was pretty wide open, which is great. Um, and uh, I just, I mean, I, I figured tooling would be pretty expensive for the product and, you know, all these different things. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it's it's been pretty invention based and I didn't know exactly how we'd go about a lot of the different things we needed to do. And, and it would take food scientists and material scientists and electrical engineers and mechanical engineers and, you know, firmware engineers and software, you know, it would take a lot of different groups. Um, to, to bring the product forward. You know, there's a grill product, there's the fuel product. Um, we do have an app as well. So like, it, there's just a lot of pieces. I had a lot to learn, of course, as well. Like EcoZoom was organically grown and bootstrapped. I, I'd never raised money before and, you know, knew that there would be a lot to learn along the way as well. Yeah, so what was the fundraising strategy and and was it a very difficult process for you? Yeah, I mean, I think like when we were first raising, people weren't really into like a connected hardware for its own sake, like people weren't getting recurring revenue off of that. And, you know, off Fitbit and others who did really great stuff, like, you know, everyone was finding that you kind of had to sell like a new product to customers every couple of years to to maintain the business in a healthy way. And so at that time it was all about recurring revenue, which worked great for us. And I, I still think it is, you know, hardware's I think really gotta have recurring revenue today. But um, you know, then it really came down to, you know, different business models and stuff like that. But yeah, in the beginning, it was it was not bad. Like we were able to raise, uh, you know, we raised from Bolt in San Francisco, who was doing exclusively hardware at the time. And they were great to work with. And I moved from Portland to San Francisco after they invested to really dive into the venture landscape and learned a ton and, you know, was, was able to make great progress there and, and really learn how to raise money, which is, of course, is like, it's tough to do, but there's a real art to it as well. You know, so we raised like a note round, uh, a couple million dollar note round, 
we raised then a, a really great seed round in August of 2019. Um, we, I think, almost 3x what we raised in offers for the round. And, you know, Lara Hippo and Global Founders Capital led the round, which was super amazing. I, you know, I think they're both super amazing in the space, like very consumer product forward. Yeah, they've been super supportive along the way as well. What has been the effect of COVID on Spark? You know, we launched during COVID. So, you know, kind of fairly classic, like hardware, you know, we sourced out of Southeast Asia, you know, we'd have a whole team there, you know, normally, and, you know, we weren't able to do that. So we kind of hacked together a system of like air freighting a couple of units from different batch runs, you know, breaking them down and understanding them really well here. Um, And then uh, basically retrofitting any major, like any minor changes that we wanted to once the product arrived. We're really through all of that now, but, um, and it was way cheaper than, you know, slowing the company down or doing it differently. Like, uh, but it, it did add, you know, cost to, uh, you know, our cost of goods for, for, you know, getting girls in and out and hurt our margins. Luckily that's behind us now. So basically what we do is import product, implement engineering change orders of how it needed to improve for next shipments, but that had to like work its way through the whole supply chain. So it was a very long process. Um, yeah, otherwise, I mean, you know, I think, you know, we've, we've had good sales, which has been great. I, you know, we don't really know how much of that is, is because of COVID. We've done some, some research around uh, how much more people are, are cooking at home during COVID and things like that. We found through our research that, that people are, are cooking on average about one more time a week at home. We have like a toddler though during startup and like, I can tell you we're just getting way more food delivered right now than, than ever before. Yeah. I mean, I think the other big thing you know, it's been like culture wise for the team, it's been, you know, it's, it's difficult, like everyone in different places and trying to coordinate and the whole team is very social and in food. And so what we've done actually is um, about once a month, we just uh, like friends of the team or, you know, and like nurses and doctors and um, like once a month, we just actually do like a rapid COVID test, and, like just kind of cut loose as a team. And it's been great. Like no, no one has ever tested positive. You know, no one's gotten sick at all, you know, from it, which has been great. Um, but uh, I think team culture has been something that's been, you know, most difficult during COVID. You know, everyone's dealing with, you know, their own things at this time, like not getting to travel or visit with family. And we're just doing what we can to like really keep, you know, keep it together you know, for the team and with the team and everyone's been doing a super amazing job. I mean, to launch at this time and prove that we could sell. And and now we're getting our metrics really tight for, you know, next fundraising. And the team has just done a super amazing job. Um, it's been really inspiring. As a CEO, how are you managing, maybe, do you want everyone to come back into the office as things open up? Are you open to some people being remote, some people coming to the office? I mean, what's kind of going through your mind right now at this at this kind of unique period in time? Yeah, I mean, during COVID, we've recruited some people that are, you know, not in in Boulder. Um, we've got some team in Portland and New York City. Uh, you know, so we've naturally had some, you know, grown some remote members of the team. So we make the bricks here in Boulder area as well. So like Boulder's very known for food startups and food production and stuff, and and that's a lot of the reason why we're here. And so we practice you know, distancing and all of the other COVID measures, but um, there is a production team here. I've been in the office myself. We've had like a nanny share at our house, a lot of COVID. My wife, um, a partner at a social venture investment company or firm. And, you know, so like the house has been a bit loud and crowded. uh, So it's been like a little peaceful at the office in comparison. But um, yeah, people just kind of come and go about half the teams in at any time. We do have like more than herd immunity here now. Colorado has been pretty good, I think, about getting vaccines out. Um, we're kind of talking about like what the strategy is. 
we're really just, you know, the team does an amazing job with workflow. It's really just about getting the work done and everyone's working hard and um, we're not too concerned uh, about how and where people do the work. It, it is hardware and we do, you know, manufacture some of the product ourselves. So like there is a lot, a lot of work in the office and in the building. Are you thinking about also eventually going into retail or not? Yeah. I mean, I think we'll see how it goes. Um, I think a lot of it for us is around like, you know, marketing costs and performance. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, retail could be a great strategy for us in the future. You know, I think for where we are right now, direct to consumer has been really nice. You know, it's, it's giving us marketing budget to really grow the brand, uh, raise awareness in a way that I, I think would be a lot harder to do without that additional margin. Um, and, you know, we're getting to really like change what the user journey is um, from onboarding to, you know, recipes and grill use and, and just really um, being able to drive engagement. Like users are using this grill like four times more than industry average and engagement's been really high. Um, you know, I think we're really learning more about what the business is, honestly, still. We've we've been in market seven, eight months now, and we're, you know, kind of really in the thick of grilling season. You know, we'll, we'll learn a lot this summer, but we, we're really loving getting to manage the whole user journey. And we get like great ratings on, you know, onboarding and assembly and all that stuff. Um, you know, I think it's about marketing efficiency and uh, and cost of sale and stuff like that. I mean, I, I could see retail being a part of the future um, if we're not able to keep those things in, in good order ourselves uh, in the years to come. Is there a part of the data that you're actually surprised by? Like people from a specific part of the country or what have you are maybe purchasing directors like, oh, I didn't really realize that that was maybe a, a grilling culture over there. My biggest learning, I think, is a lot more rudimentary. I'm just like, astounded how much people love the product like yeah i mean it like totally freaks me out in a good way i'm just like wow we created something like people really really love like 96 percent of our customers actively use the grill four times higher usage than normal through the winter people really love it and i I think it just kind of freaks me out how much people like it like so much where i'm like oh i must be missing something or um i'm kind of like feel like sometimes i'm like waiting for the other shoe to drop but um yeah i mean at this point it's pretty clear that it's real which has been really exciting i think that's probably the best learning that you could have and i know there's also a tie-in with spark grills and ecozoom do you mind just uh talking a little bit about that as well yeah, it's not actually with EcoZoom. Uh, you know, I like we're pretty agnostic about who we work with, but um, yeah. So for and and we're ramping up this program a lot. We've done it since the beginning, but a lot of people don't even know it actually. So so for every grill we sell with a partner in Ghana, uh, place a, a cook stove with a poor person. Yeah, I mean so. You know, Ghana is heavily deforested and all of the other like climate change and health impacts uh, are there as much as anywhere. Yeah, it's been, you know, it's uh, with a partner I've worked with a lot before. You know, I'm really excited to be working with him. And there's a lot more that we'll be sharing about that over time. And I'm really excited to be kicking that program off. It's 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 been a lot of inspiration for the company in the first place. And, you know, we raised first money like four years ago now. So it's really amazing to actually be in market, of course, but also like, and, you know, and to see it working, but um, it's really nice to get the social venture program up. And, you know, over the long term, you know, we really plan to show that, you know, this is the way the market wants to do business and stickier customer relationships and hopefully even like ROI on, you know, the social impact side of what we're doing. I love that because it's also probably pretty gratifying in that it kind of comes full circle. You started like a social impact company with EcoZoom helping people in developing countries. And now you're able to give back through Spark, which is pretty, pretty incredible. That's awesome. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Team culture is something that I, I mean, it's I, to me, it's just like 
it's everything. You know, the team working well together, communicating. I just read uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team for a second time. <laughs> yeah, like I just think um, it's, you know, it's kind of one of those books where like you read it a second time and I think you, you start to understand it a little bit more, like different things jump out to you. But yeah, I mean, I'm always surprised, but I'm like, yeah, culture is the most important thing. And then like time and again, it's like, yeah, it's like grows in importance somehow still. Yeah. The other um, that comes to mind, you know, I think in like in startup, like if you don't bend, you'll break. And I think founders and, and everyone working in startup is really trying to get a lot out of themselves and, and always be improving performance. And, you know, I think a lot of that is around like non-resistance and mindfulness and stuff. But I think the other side of it is like actually getting away and, and having contrast to startup environment, you know, you know, being present with family and loved ones and friends and uh, kind of the, you know, opposite side of the spectrum, I guess, maybe. But um, yes, yeah, so what comes to mind is actually... Um, there's a book by a guy, Ram Dass, it's just called Be Here Now. And it's just uh, it's just about just like slowing down and being present and, you know, finding beauty in any moment. I love that. I don't think we've had another person on the show mention Be Here Now. So really excited to add that to the list. My final question to you is, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? I think I'm, maybe this is me. I think this is me trying to take my own advice as well. I think just like, it's a journey. It's, you know, startup, I think is like life. You never know the what's going to happen, the ups and downs. Uh, I think it's just really about enjoying, like, you know, really trying to find moments to enjoy it. Cause like, you, do, you, just, you just never know what's going to happen. And I think, you know, both positive and negative. And it's really about just like doing your best to enjoy the process um, and, and hopefully get out of your own way as a part of that. Yeah, I love that. I think that also ties into be here now as well, with just being present in the moment and um, and also enjoying it. That's that's great. Ben, this was so much fun. Thanks again for your time. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Ben on. I hope you all enjoyed this as much as I did. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 